0: Glad you guys are joining us. For those of you who are joining us online, we're glad that you're joining us today, that uh, you marked out some time in your day to, uh, to join us in pursuing God together. Glad you guys are here in the room with us. Hey, um, if you are a junior high or high schooler, and you want to head over to the other building, we're going to have some youth stuff going on in the other building. If you don't know your way, um, follow the bald guy. Um, his name's Scott. Scott. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and you can follow them out. Hey, um, uh, we are going to be in Matthew 17. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 17. If you don't have a Bible, you can, um, uh, you can just follow along with it. I'm going to read and then relevant verses I'll put up here on the screen. Uh, but before we get there, while you're turning to Matthew 17, I want to give you a little update. Um, about 14 months ago, um, this thing happened, right? Um, it wasn't spring break. Uh, COVID, this thing happened, right? And, and um, one of the questions that we started to ask ourselves really quick in COVID was, what does it look like to be the church? Not just to be a service, but what does it look like to be the church in the midst of, if you remember back, right? A lot of things may be different now. We know a lot of things now. But if you remember back 14 months ago, we had no clue what we were dealing with right? And um, totally unsure of what the next month or months were going to look like. And so we as the leadership of the church were kind of wrestling with, well, how does it look like to be the church? And, and, and we have some really beautiful and great examples throughout church history. Um, in fact, even before Christianity was really a recognized thing, um, in the first couple hundred years of the Christian story post-Jesus, um, the church was this so otherworldly force that the world couldn't ignore it. Um, there were there were stories. There were times where there would be um, plagues that would that would explode into a city, and and people completely unfamiliar with what was causing the plague, totally no understanding of science or anything like that. You know, they'd have all these theories about why it was happening or the gods or um, you know. Uh, uh, that it was just urban living or something. And so they would all start fleeing from the city. They'd start running from the city. And as people are just exiting, just abandoning their homes, abandoning their stuff, exiting the cities, they would, they would be leaving the cities, passing these other people that were going into the city. And it got people's attention because there was this group of people that most people didn't even really know about that was in the midst of uncertainty and in the midst of likely death, they were going into the cities where there was all this death and disease and many of those people literally gave their life serving and loving those who were dying from these plagues that they had no grasp of or understanding. And those people were these Jesus followers. And it's where things, it's how things like hospitals began to get birthed, was, was Christians going into these places and very, in very real ways risking their own life. And so we were wrestling with this question of, like, you know, 21st century, we don't, we don't all have to, like, run, like we have hospitals, we have medical people, we have professionals, we, we, you know, part of, we need to let them do their job and make sure to stay out of the way and all those types of things. But what does it look like to be the church? And, and there's this passage in the book of Acts, in Acts 2, and it talks about the early church, and it talks about what the early church looked like. And one of the things that it said was that um, they, they sold what they had and gave to those who had need, so that no one went without, right? And um, that there, the, the one of the things that marked this early community of the church was the people who lived so generously and so sacrificially that they made sure that they cared for one another. And so um, in, in a season where there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of uncertainty about the future, we, we offered you this challenge of what would it look like if we we asked you to be generous, above and beyond, to be generous, to create a fund, to be generous of the people in our church, completely, now just remember, now today it's easier to be like, oh, okay, well, that, you know, that wasn't a big deal. But remember, 14 months ago, we had no clue what was going on, and we asked you to be generous, completely unaware of what it looked like for your family, for your life, how bad things would get or how bad things wouldn't, how it affect our economy or how it wouldn't, completely unaware of what was going to happen in the future, and we asked you to be generous, and you guys stepped up in a really incredible, huge way, and in one month gave over $30,000 to what we call this Acts 2 fund, right, which was incredible. Now, over the last year, we've been using that money. We've been generous with people inside of our church. We haven't been. We we have. We've been able to fulfill every single request from someone inside our church. But but here's the really awkward um, uh, thing. A lot of times when you do these types of things, like um, next. In two weeks, it's going to be Mother's Day, we're going to talk about, we're going to get back to doing our um, diaper and wipes drive that we do for Mother's Day, and we're going to try and fill a truck, a trailer full of diapers and wipes for families who are caring for those who are in the foster care system, Uh, all this kind of stuff. Uh, Those are easy things to be like, hey, look at how much we did, right? It's a little more awkward when we're, you know, when Timmy in our church, you know, ends up losing his job, things change, and he needs help with some stuff. And we like pull Timmy up and we're like, hey, Timmy's broke and a mess, but you guys, you guys, like Timmy's never coming back to our church. Right? So we've tried to be as anonymously transparent and, and help you to see when you guys have been able to help and how you've been able to help. But I want you to know that over the last year, we've been able to give away in helping people inside of our church about $20,000 to help people who've been affected by what's been going on in the last year. That's awesome. Right? We, we still have, um, you know, uh, uh, about $12,000 in that account left. We're still holding it out. It's, you know, obviously it's kind of pivoting in what we're responding to, but we're still honoring the intent that it is for using for um, when needs of people inside of our church so we can be excessively generous, I mean, abundantly, over the top. Some of them have been, you know, uh, you know, a couple hundred bucks for groceries. Some of them have been some really big, significant, uh, monumental, what could have been financially ruining um, uh, burdens for people that you have been able to help, love on people. And I just wanted to read, when, when, when people, when we went through this process, we gave them an opportunity to anonymously write a little bit of a thank you note, and I just want to read one of those um, thank you notes to you. Um, it, it comes from a family who, uh, right after COVID, uh, they um, both, they, they lost their jobs um, and quickly became hard to pay their mortgage, and they got a job. But, you know, they ended up kind of in the rears, and you actually you actually just made a payment for their mortgage payment for them to stay in their home and, and be caught up. And so this is what they wrote. Thank you, MCC. Thank you for wrapping your arms around our family. Thank you for the tears of joy that our family has shared because of the gift that you brought to our family. Thank you for reminding us that it is okay to say yes to help. God never stops working. My husband has been, never been so open to talk about God because of the generosity and love of our church. And I just want to say thank you. Like you're, you're it's awkward because there are people you're sitting next to in seats. It's awkward because there are people that you know. But this is what it means to be the church, is to be a place where we carry our burdens one with another. And so, a year out, I just want to say thank you for your generosity. I want you to know that's continuing to have impacts in families in our church, um, and will continue to because of your incredible faith and generosity in a season of such uncertainty to step out open-handed and trust God for the future. So, uh, with that, we're 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 in Matthew 17. So, you got your Bibles, Matthew 17. Uh, um, uh, uh, well, I'm going to read a little bit of the story to you, but I want to give you a little catch up because if you've missed the last month, uh, Matthew 16 starts a narrative that we're still connected to. Okay, there are kind of in sections when you're reading through the Gospels, there's there's kind of um, common you know one arc of a story as a sub story of Jesus' life, and Matthew 16, and Matthew 17 is one of those like blips where we see a full arc of a story going on. So Matthew 16, Jesus says to the disciples, he says, um, who do the people say that I am? Right? And they say, oh, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a prophet. They lift off these people. And, uh, and Jesus says to him, he says, um, but who do you say that I am? Right? And, and Peter stands up boldly, you know, and he says, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago that Christ is the same word, it's the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, that Jesus Christ, Christ isn't Jesus' last name, it's a title. Um, It means anointed or anointed king, right? So when Peter stands up, he says, you are the king of all of creation. And Jesus is honestly, it really seems like from his statement, Jesus is kind of blown away. Like, I don't know what, Jesus. I mean, Jesus knows all things, he's God. He knew what was gonna happen. But in his humanness, it's almost kind of like Jesus wasn't quite sure how they were going to respond, right? And, and he tells Peter, he says, man, what you just said is amazing. Peter, I know you, okay? There's no way you thought of that yourself, right? God must have revealed that to you. And so Peter, you know, he gets, gets a little big for his britches and Jesus begins to explain to him what it looks like to be the king of all creation, that unlike any other king of all of history, he is going to be the king who's going to give himself for his people, Right And Peter, you know, he's like, (laughs) Um, Jesus, uh, you missed the mark, right? So he pulls Jesus aside, and he tries to rebuke Jesus, and Jesus rebukes him, and and Jesus says, you know, get behind me, Satan, right? And what an unfun season that was for Peter. And then last week we talked about this this really weighty, theologically rich, beautiful moment that actually Peter... um, Peter, James, and John, all write about later, their their world pivots on this moment. We call it the transfiguration. It's a moment where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and he goes up on top of a mountain, and, and he reveals to them, they see he's transfigured. The word there is metamorphosis, is where we get metamorphosis. His being is changed so that they can see the fullness of God's glory in him. They can see him as God, his, the fullness of God. And it's this monumentally significant, beautiful, weighty moment. And, and, um, and then they begin to come down the, the mountain. Well, you've you got to remember, Jesus had 12 disciples, right? And so three of them are up on the mountain. The other nine are at the bottom of the mountain. And, and, and as happens, everywhere Jesus goes... Crowds gather, people, people show up and they, they, they begin to bring their, their deaf and they're hurting and they're broken and they're sick and they begin to bring them to Jesus. And so they come to the disciples and Jesus isn't there. Now it doesn't say it explicitly in the text, but we can see it pretty easily in the story that the, the people begin to come to the disciples and they begin to ask this, begin to ask this question, they begin to make this request. Um, we came for Jesus, he's not here. You're maybe the JV team, but you're on his team. Can you do something? Right? Can you do something? And and it happens whenever you get a crowd together, they kind of get a little antsy. They get a little anxious. They get a little nervous. They get a little stir crazy. And so the disciples, the other nine disciples, you know, Matthew, who's writing this, being one of those, sitting around with one another, and they're like, what, 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 what do we do? I mean, like, Peter's not here to put his foot in his mouth and distract us from all of our lack of obedience. Like, Peter's gone. Like, who's, what are we going to do? You know, maybe Andrew's over there. Well, I mean, bread worked last time. Like, let's just take some bread and see if we can feed them, and that'll make them happy, you know, and then they'll go away, right? And one of them obviously goes, well, you know, we did this before. Because, you see, if you remember, if you you read the Gospels in chronology, Jesus has already sent the disciples out before. He sent them out to go do miraculous things. And they come back, and this is what Jesus says to them. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, from the skies. I saw Satan fall like lightning. And, and you got to think the nine of them are going around. Oh, you know, we did this before. We, we can do this. We can do this. And Jesus comes down to a crowd stir crazy and anxious demanding for signs demanding for healings demanding for something to happen desperate for hope and this is what it says Matthew Matthew 17 verse 14 when they being Jesus Peter James and John came to the crowd a man came up to Jesus falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. Now, your translation might say something different than that word. Um, The reason that word's there is because um, they believed, it's why we have the word lunatic, is that um, they believed lunar, they believed that a lot of health and mental and spiritual things were affected by the moon. And so the translation I'm using chooses to use that in there to be honest to the way that they actually refer to it. Okay, so it says this. For he is a lunatic and is very ill. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, you unbelieving and perverted generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Those are some harsh words. You unbelieving and perverted generation. Now, a lot of times when we read it, or at a first reading, this is the way we may read it, is that this, the guy comes up, he falls in front of Jesus, and Jesus looks at him, and he looks at the crowd that's gotten together, and he goes, you wicked and sinful people. Right, But who's actually Jesus talking about and what's he saying to the people he's talking to? Well, Matthew tells us a little bit later, if you skip down, look at verse 20. Right, Um, The disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, why why couldn't we fix him? Why couldn't we cure him? Why couldn't we do what you did? And he said to them, he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. Or it says in this translation, because of your faith meager faith because of your lack of faith, because of your unbelieving faith. So when Jesus looks up and he sees people standing in front of him and he says these words, you unbelieving and perverted generation, who's he talking to? Well, he's talking to the disciples. He's talking to the disciples. How long must I be with you? I mean, I don't know if you know the chronology of how this thing works out, but we're in Matthew 17. There's not a lot of chapters left in this book before Jesus is crucified. How long must I be with you? How long have you? Okay, okay, okay. Disciples, come here, come here, come here, come here. You remember the water? You remember the storm? You remember the chaos? You remember the panic? And then you remember what I did? I stood up on the front of the boat and I said, peace, be calm. And it was. You remember the woman? With the issue of bleeding, desperate. I didn't even turn to say anything to her. She just touched the hem of my garment. And you know what I did? I healed her. How long? You remember the crowds that came hungry and weary? And I took some bread and I took some fish and I broke it. In. How long? Years. Come on, guys. And a lot of times we read this verse that Jesus says, you unbelieving and perverted generation, and we read it as a moral sense, but the word in Greek there is literally a twisted branch. This is what we say to the disciples. Come on, guys. You missed it. How'd you get so twisted backwards and messed up? And so what is he critiquing? What is he upset? What is he frustrated with the disciples that they've missed it? How long must I endure with you, you unbelieving and twisted generation? What's he, what's he, critiquing. Well, Matthew, remember as we've been reading through this book, one of the things that we say is really important as we read through the book of Matthew is to remember this. Matthew is a Jew who's writing to a bunch of Jews. So let me ask you this, okay? Can you think of a story in the Jewish scriptures in the the Old Testament, can you think of a story where um, there was a crowd of people and they're wandering around, and, and, and they're looking for direction, and they go towards the base of this mountain. And then the leader goes up on top of the mountain. The leader's up on top of the mountain and, and, and ex- has an experience with God. God's presence is so thick in that place that it changes everything, that the whole of what it means to be a part of that people pivots and changes. heard the story? And then, and then that leader, you know, he's up on the mountain, but the people are down on, down not on the mountain, and they begin to get a little antsy, and they get a little stir crazy, and 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 they begin to get distracted, they begin to forget, and in fact, um, the passage that we're going to look at in Exodus, it says that when Moses, if you've heard the story, when Moses comes back down off of the mountain, he finds the camp. The word there is in chaos in discord, in, 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 in messed up, chaotic, disheveled. And it comes down to a people who have taken their eyes off the one who gave them life and freedom. And, and again, we hear this like this, this um, constant chorus that you hear all throughout the Old Testament where God's going to his people and going, <laughs> Don't you remember how long must I endure with you? Don't you remember? Remember, remember? Hey, 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 remember the sea? Remember the sea? You, you know what a sea is? Like a bunch of water, like water, really deep, right? A bunch of water. And then you remember? You remember you were getting chased by the most powerful army in the world? And then you remember? I went, and the sea went, just like that. You remember? You remember that? Did you remember that? Huh? Huh? You remember? And then you went, and some of you skipped through there. And you got to the other side, and then you remember, I went like this, I went, And the greatest arm in the world was submerged in the waves of the sea. Do you remember that? How have you forgotten already? How long? What's it gonna take? How long, how easily and how quickly our minds and our hearts wander away from the one who freed us? How long? See, in the story, um, Moses comes down, and he, he calls out Aaron, and he's like, hey, Aaron, like, uh, I know you're JV here, and I know you're B-team, but, like, what happened here, right? And, and then it says this in Exodus 32, Exodus 32, this is what Aaron says. He says, don't be angry with me, right, deflecting. You know as well as I do that they're determined to do evil, right? He's, like, already blaming. Doesn't this kind of sound like the Garden of Eden, right? God, you left this woman with me, right? They even told me, that man Moses, he can't even even refer to him as a person who exists. That man Moses led us out of Egypt, but now we don't know what has happened to him. Make us a God to lead us. And so they take all of their gold and they dump it into a pot, and they melt it down, and they stir it up, and they make it into a golden calf by their own efforts and energy, believing that somehow the golden calf that they fashioned, if they say the right words, and do the right things, and, and dance the right dances, and sing the right songs, and bow the right way, and give enough of the right money to this calf that they've made by their own gold, will free them. See, this is This is idolatry. This is actually, um, the Bible has a word for it. It's witchcraft. It's believing that, that by some power you can say the right things and do the right things and manipulate God into doing what you want him to do for you. It's witchcraft. And Matthew sees something similar in this story as in the story when Jesus comes down the hill, a people who've demanded that they make a God to lead us. And Jesus' frustration with the disciples is that they've lost their focus. They've lost seeing the one who parted the seas. They've lost seeing the one who brings life and brings hope and brings purpose. You see, Jesus... Jesus is critiquing the disciples, and Matthew's wanting to see it through the lens of the story in the book of Exodus because he wants to see that even faith can become an idol, can become an idol and a pathway to witchcraft. And here's what I mean. Um, if you've ever heard someone tell you, or if you've ever heard it said, uh, you just need to have more faith just need to have more faith. When we use those words, what we're doing and what the disciples were doing when they were down at the bottom of the hill is that they thought, they believed, we've done this before, right? We went out, we healed people, we said the right words, we did the right things, we bowed the right way, we sung the right songs, and we made God do for us what we wanted him to do. When we do that, when we approach our faith in a way where we treat God like a vending machine and our faith is like a debit card that we just rack up credit, Right, And you can go and you can can say, well, God, you know what? I prayed this morning. I prayed this morning. I read my Bible. I read seven verses in a row before I went to Facebook. Let's be honest. 2021, that's an accomplishment. Okay? Jesus, Jesus, I gave money. I've done all of these right things. And then when we approach God saying, God, look at all the things I've done, now you need to do for me, it's what we often call vending machine theology. Is that if you pay the penalty and you pay the fees, that you can somehow manipulate God into doing what you want him to do. And first of all, if, like, if that was the case, that would be a scary world. If you can manipulate God to doing whatever you want him to do, that would be a terrifying world because I've met some of you. And the things you'd want him, it would be a messed up world, right? But more than that, the Bible has a term for what it is, when we think that by saying the right words and doing the right actions, even if they are good things, like reading your Bible, or singing songs of worship, or serving one another, or being generous with your finances, that if we believe that we can do the right things to manipulate God to do what we want Him to do, even if, now hear me, even if those things that we want Him to do are good things, that when we do that, The Bible has a word for that, and it's not vending machine theology. It is just as the Israelites did. It's witchcraft. To think and believe that we can somehow put God in our debt and make him do the things we want him to do. A.W. Tozer, a great theologian, he, he wrote about this prevalence decades and decades and decades and decades ago in the church. This is not a new thing, and this is what he said. If if we only believe hard enough, we'll make it somehow. So goes the popular chant. The back of this is the nebulous idea that, that faith is an almighty power flowing through the universe that anyone may plug into at will. It is conceived vaguely as a sub-rational creative pulsation streaming down from somewhere up there, ready at any time to enter our hearts and change our mental and moral constitution as well as our total outlook on man, God, and the cosmos. It is a kind of poor man's transcendentalism. He, he, here's what I would say. It's kind of a poor man's version of Star Wars and the Force. How often we approach God and faith as some sort of power that we can manipulate ourselves and others and the natural order of this world. That if we just, if we could just tap in, if we could just grab, which first of all, can we just be honest? Living in a world that was Star Wars would be amazing. Can we just, if you've, like, I mean, right now I sit on my couch and I have to say, I mean, think of how horrible a world I live in. I have to say, Alexa, turn off the lights. Right, But can you imagine if I could just go and the lights would turn off? That would be an awesome world. And a lot of us face face our faith that way. We think that if we just could tap in well, if we could just foster an internal strength in us, a fortitude in us, that we could control the results or the answers or manipulate God into doing things. And it is an extremely dangerous, destructive way of living our faith. Because see, here's the problem. A lot of you at this point are already on the verge of being bitter and angry with God about something. Because, because, because you've, already, you've already convinced yourself that if I do enough of the right things, then that person won't get sick. If I read my Bible often enough and I show up to church and I give enough, that my marriage won't fall apart, that my kids won't wander away, that my finances won't be a mess, that my job won't be in jeopardy. And Satan uses this kind of view that we can manipulate God into doing what we want for us to actually destroy, not bolster our faith. To become a weapon that draws us away from God when he does not respond to our manipulation. You see, the problem for the disciples and the problem often for us when we're trying to figure this thing out of faith, when we're trying to follow God and walk and be obedient, all those types of things, is um, they're at the foot of the mountain with a bunch of people, and there's a pressing issue. Like, there's people that are there that are sick and ill and, and maybe on the verge of dying, right? And there's, there's pressures pressing in on them, and what they do is they begin to look at one another, and they go, hey, you know what? I think we can handle this. I think we can figure this out. Remember, I mean, I said the right prayer last time and when I touched this person, they were healed. And there's one single question the disciples missed that would have changed everything. And it is the one question we must ask ourselves every day, in every moment, in whatever it means to follow God in faith. We must ask this simple, simple, painful and difficult question that would have changed the whole scenario for the disciples. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Like, like, like th- there's this crowd pressing in, there's all these demands on my life, and there's a stress and these things breaking apart, but where's Jesus? Because here's what I know, and here's what we need to know, and here's what it really means to follow God in faith, is that I can't fix anything. In fact, most of the brokenness in my life is because I was involved in my life. That I'm in desperate need of a Savior who can speak life, who can bring dead things to life, who can bring healing and bring hope. You see, there is a power inside of you. But it's not you. And this may sound like semantics because if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in you. The presence of God is in you. And and he's equipped you and strengthened you to do incredible and and, and to move. and, And there are sometimes where there are miraculous things that happen through you, but it is not because you have somehow fostered some sort of strength of faith that God has become indebted to you because he's so impressed and desperate for you to be on his team. In fact, the word faith probably means something very different than what we all think it does, or at least the way we live. There's a, there's a, ver, there's a, um, uh, can we get that, that definition up here, the, the Greek English, um, the Greek English, uh, or English Greek, here we go. In case you need some light reading, you guys can uh, buy yourself a copy of the Greek English lexicon of the New Testament based on semantic domains. It's some really great nighttime reading. But it says this, this is what faith means, to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. Faith is not a power that you can harness to manipulate God into doing what you want him to do for you. Faith is trust. Faith is reliance. Faith is dependence. Faith is, faith is what, the, what the, the, the father of the son did when he fell on his face before, before Jesus and said, please, you are the only one. Jesus, you are the only one. You are the only one. Anything apart from complete trust and reliance and dependence upon Jesus is not the faith that he's calling us to. There is a power in us. There is the presence of God, and God can do miraculous and amazing things. But our call is to trust, to fall on our face before God. Now, some of you have already looked ahead, and you've seen this. There's this little spot in verse 20. Let's put up verse 20. It says this. You've seen this. Jesus responds and says, because of your meager faith, for I truly say, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, uh, move from here to there, and it will move. Now, we've misread this so many times, and I'll be honest, there have been times where I mistaught this, because when we see this word, and, and yours may say, if you have faith as a mustard seed, or like a mustard seed, or... The same as a mustard seed, you, because you see, the word here that gets translated as size is not, um, uh, it's not quantitative, it's qualitative. And, and here's what I mean. What Jesus isn't saying is he isn't saying, hey, you have faith that's like a one, but a mustard seed has a faith that's a seven. And if you could just muster, if you, no pun intended, if you could just grunt yourself to get yourself to a faith of a seven, then you could do miraculous things. He's saying if you have faith, in fact, almost like 80% of the time, this, this word here gets translated as as or like. That if you had faith like a mustard seed. If all you did was trust. If all you did was, was be dependent upon him. You see, the power of faith, the power of life, the power of freedom in Christ is not in your effort, your goodness, your discipline, Are you saying the right words, or kneeling the right way, or singing enough songs, or giving enough money, or giving enough of your time. It is in none of that. The power of Christ is in him, in the object that which saves us, not in your faith in it. In fact, Timothy Keller says it this way. Timothy Keller has this really great quote. Um, He's a super smart guy. He he says this. It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Take a moment and think about that. It is not the strength of your faith, but it is the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak, weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. If my big old self goes climbing out on a little rickety branch, my faith that the branch isn't going to break isn't going to make me any safer. It is not uh, strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Here, let me, let me explain to you as another illustration. I don't know if the story is true or not, but we're going to act like it's true because it's more beautiful if it is true. And it's really cute if it's true, okay? So there's a story, a father and daughter are walking along a river, right? And at first as they're walking along the river, it's kind of a shallow edge to the river and there's a lot of space. And so they're walking along, you know, picking up rocks and skipping rocks on the river and all that kind of stuff. Well, as they're walking up the river, it gets to the part where the river starts to move faster and the bank starts to get narrower and steeper. And so the father turns to his daughter, he turns back to his father, daughter and he says, he says uh, uh, hold my hand so you don't slip in. Right? And she says, no. And he stops and he looks at her and she says, you hold my hand. And he says, wasn't that the same thing? And she goes, no, your hand's stronger than mine. You see, too many of us for far too long have thought that we could somehow please God, honor God, or convince God to fix things in our life because the strength of our faith because the strength of our grit, because the discipline, because of all that we've given him. But it is not you that does the saving. It is not you that heals, restores, and redeems. It is not your faithfulness or your discipline or your goodness or your hard work. It is Jesus. It is the God who breathed and the seas parted is the God who touched the blind and the broken and the hurting and the aching and they were healed in an instant. So whatever you're going through today, whatever fear, whatever heartache, whatever um, anger, bitterness, sorrow, the question we must ask ourselves every single day is just this simple question. Where's Jesus? What I need to do as a follower of Jesus, is get myself as close to him so that he can hold on to me. Because in this broken, weary, wave-crashing, destructive world, it is not me that will save me. It is a good and gracious and kind God. Faith is not some force or some power that I muster inside of myself to try and manipulate God. Faith is simply this. Jesus, Jesus, I need you. Save me, hold me, carry me, be everything for me.